Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, last Sunday, we were challenged to live with the mind of Christ. As we discussed then, this meant being continually converted away from the mentality of the age, which seeks to elevate and even divinize the self and to the mentality of Christ. The attitude of the incarnate Son was described by St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians last weekend as doing nothing out of selfishness or pride, but instead as an attitude that humbly regards others as more important than ourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also everyone for those of others. Continually undergoing such a conversion enables us to make practical decisions as Christ does in real time, and thereby live lives of self-sacrificing love to God and neighbor. Humility and self-sacrificing love thus form the Christian virtue of prudence, the virtue that enables us to read everyday situations in the light of the gospel and apply it concretely moment to moment. The readings for this Sunday extend our conversation regarding living the life of Christ while also warning us of the temptation to reject his way as many have and continue to do up and down the centuries. Our gospel reading for this Sunday is from Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 to 43. There, Jesus teaches us through the parable of the tenants. Before digging in, it is important that we remind ourselves of the context of this pericope. As was mentioned last weekend, all of the gospel readings for the remainder of this liturgical year occurred during the last week of Jesus' earthly life in Matthew's gospel, between Palm Sunday and the Passion. The parable of the tenants follows immediately upon last Sunday's gospel and the parable of the two sons. Recall that Jesus had told the parable of the two sons as a sort of allegorical response to the chief priests and the elders of the people asking Jesus what authority he had to enter triumphantly into Jerusalem, hailed as the son of David, and to cleanse the temple. Jesus, as you recall, refuses to respond to this question from the chief priests and the elders of the people because they will not answer the question he put to them regarding the origin of John the Baptist baptism of repentance. Considering themselves righteous and in no need of repentance, the chief priests and the elders of the people not only reject John's baptism of repentance, but fail to recognize the grace of God at work in the genuine repentance lived out by those they consider the scum of the earth, tax collectors and prostitutes. Consequently, we were able to see in them the elder son of the parable, who is obedient to the Father in word, but not in deed. This led to our consideration that the parable of the two sons emphasized the fact that faith is not just a matter of intellectual assent, but must be lived with the whole of one's life, beginning with repentance. It is also important to recall our discussions regarding the non-competitive cooperative nature of salvation over the past couple of weekends. The life of Christian faith is lived in this manner. 
God acting fully by his grace in and through us, such that our freedom is made truly free, and we at once become a more perfect version of the image of God we have each been created to be, and a channel of his grace to the world. The cooperative effort of salvation has been emphasized by Jesus giving us parables that place the theme of work at their center. And so it is with today's parable. Following upon the parable of the two sons without interruption in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the tenants Jesus teaches us today is presented to us as an extension of Jesus' allegorical response to the chief priests and the elders' question regarding his authority. Jesus begins in verse 33 by saying, Hear another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Jesus does not here speak of a father as in last Sunday's parable, but rather, once again as in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, of a landowner. Recall that in the Greek the word is oikodespote, which means master of the house. It is worth reminding ourselves of the significance of this word for the sake of our discussion today. One of the root words of the Greek oikodespote is the word oikos, which means house. Oikos is also the root word of the Greek oikonomia, which is where we derive the English word economy from. In its most basic sense, oikonomia refers to the running of the household, including whatever way the household earned a living. In this case, once again, it's by running a vineyard. Jesus, then, is using the figure of the master of the house once again to teach us something about how God orders his household, if you want, all of creation, to bring its salvation and full flourishing. In other words, Jesus is going to teach us something about the economy of salvation, as the fathers of the church would put it. As mentioned, once again, the setting is a vineyard. Two weekends ago, we discussed the importance of this setting, connecting it to the second story of creation in Genesis 2. It is important for us to do so once again while bringing in our first reading for today from the book of the prophet Isaiah into the discussion. The hope is that by setting these passages next to one another, we will be able to see continuity with development in what God has chosen to reveal to us via the divine inspiration of Scripture. In Genesis 2 verse 8, we find God planting a garden. This garden, we are told, includes every tree that was delightful to look at and good for food with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is here that God places Adam and sets him to work in verse 15 of the same chapter, giving him full freedom in the garden, with the exception of the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two weekends ago, we drew from book 8 of St. Augustine's The Literal Meaning of Genesis to find in this scenario a figure of the relationship between the Creator and the creature. According to Augustine, Adam was supposed to see himself in the garden. And just as the garden flourished through Adam's working it, Adam was to learn that God was cultivating the life of virtue in him, so as to fully flourish into the unique expression of God's image he had been created to be. As we know, Adam did not yield virtue under God's care, but rather allowed the vice of pride to choke out the action of God's grace within and around him and subsequently, together with Eve, fell out of relationship with God through disobedience. We hear an echo of these dynamics in our first reading for today from chapter 5 of the book of the prophet Isaiah. The passage begins with the prophet telling us, My friend had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He spaded it, cleared it of stones, and planted the choicest vines. 
Here, just as in chapter 2 of Genesis, we have a figure of God as the divine gardener. Just as in chapter 2 of Genesis, God created a garden, so now God clears the way for a new garden, a vineyard. And just as God had made every tree that was delightful to look at and good for food to grow in the Garden of Eden, so now he plants the choicest vines. The nuancing of the imagery is important, both looking backward and forward in salvation history, and this in two ways. First, whereas God had created a garden in Genesis, he now clears the way for a new garden, where those he places are meant to flourish. This speaks directly to the human family's relationship with its creator. Down through salvation history, God uses garden imagery to reveal to us what our relationship with him is meant to be like, and at times, how it goes wrong, as we see both in this first reading and our gospel parable for today. Such is also revealed by the temple imagery of the Old Testament, the place where the creator and his chosen people met most intimately. Both the Temple of Solomon and the new temple visioned by Ezekiel are saturated with garden imagery. To this very day, many churches are adorned with images of vegetation of all types for the same reason. The intimacy experienced in worship, however, is meant to transfigure the whole of creation by creatures bringing the presence of the Creator into it. Thus, whereas Adam and Eve were meant to bring order to the entirety of creation so that it might flourish, just as the garden God had planted, so too the people of God have the very same mission of renewing the face of the earth by the grace received in the gardens that are our places of worship. In both our first reading from Isaiah then, and in our gospel reading for today, the garden imagery speaks to God's ongoing work of salvation, of recreating, of renewing his good creation that has been distorted by sin and its punishment, death. However, just as in the Garden of Eden, so too God's efforts to renew creation are thwarted by the disobedience of his people. Instead of yielding good grapes for wine, the prophet says, the owner of the vineyard found only rotten grapes when harvest time came. Here already, there is a clear hint at one of the main teaching points given to us by God for today. Even when God gives us all the grace we need to flourish, even when he clears the ground for us and removes the barriers that might inhibit our relationship with him from growing and thereby becoming the unique version of God's image we have been created to be, we can still refuse him. We can still refuse God's love in a perverted act of free choice. The second point to note is a bit of a contrast with our gospel parable for today, but speaks to this last comment. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, we are only told of God's, the divine gardener's, efforts to grow the choicest grapes from the choicest vines for the production of good wine. Not so in our parable for today. It seems clear that Jesus intentionally begins today's parable by echoing chapter 5 of Isaiah. The setting is nearly identical. Thus, just as in Isaiah the landowner planted a vineyard with a tower and a wine press in it, so too here. The only additional detail here is that there is a hedge placed around the vineyard. More on this detail momentarily. For now, the next detail introduces a profound development in the history of divine revelation. Jesus says, Then the master of the house leased the vineyard to tenants and went on a journey. New agents have been introduced in our Lord's parable. No longer does the landowner do all the work. Instead, care for what he has created has been entrusted to others. 
in this, we have returned to something more akin to the Garden of Eden. Just as God had entrusted the care and cultivation of what he had created to Adam and Eve, so now God entrusts the work of recreation to others. Thus, once again, Jesus is emphasizing the non-competitive cooperative element in salvation. God does not intend to work unilaterally or forcefully, but harmoniously with the human family to bring salvation to this world which he so loves. Once again, as was the case two weekends ago, the images used by Jesus have multiple layers of meaning. Just as in the Garden of Eden Adam was meant to see himself in the garden, so too with the tenants of the parable. Under the conditions the master of the house had given them, they were to produce a crop of grapes fit for the wine press. Read figuratively, and in light of both Genesis 2 and Isaiah 5, the tenants are themselves the vines meant to yield the choicest grapes, another figure we will need to unpack. Jesus next tells us that the time for harvest arrived. And at this point, things go horribly wrong. We are told that the master of the house sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants, and one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. The same happens when more numerous servants are sent to the vineyard to obtain the master's produce. What is Jesus trying to tell us with this additional detail not found in Isaiah? What Jesus is doing here is giving us a brief synopsis of salvation history. We have already heard that in contrast to Isaiah 5, the vineyard has a hedge built around it. What does a hedge do but bring order to a definite space and thereby protect what is enclosed by it? And what had God given the people to order their way of life but the law, not to impede their freedom, but to give it direction and protect it so that they might learn to use it properly? just as he had at the beginning by giving Adam and Eve one command. One command was too much for our first parents, as was the law for the tenants of this parable. It is obvious they had no intention to live by it. For when those who are sent by the master of the house come to remind the tenants of what they had been called to do and collect the produce, they are repeatedly mistreated and even killed. In these servants we have a figure of the prophets who down through salvation history were mistreated by the people of God, as Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew. But the master of the house does not give up. He is relentless in his pursuit to collect the produce he desires. Thus, finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, They will respect my son. But the son fares no better than the servants. Instead, the tenants say to themselves, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. Far from showing the son greater respect, they see murdering him as an opportunity to take what is rightfully his. In this, Jesus is clearly speaking of himself and predicting his passion, which we recall is now less than a week away within the timeline of Matthew's gospel. Thus, Jesus is once again emphasizing to the chief priests and the elders of the people that God is working their salvation before them and they refuse to see it. They refuse to see the grace being offered to them. But more perversely than that, they hate how God has chosen to work their salvation and determine to decide for themselves how their lives should be ordered and dictate the terms of their relationship with God to the point of taking what is His by force. Here, Jesus is putting the brokenness of our humanity on full display. 
For though we have been created for loving communion with God, time and again throughout history, we have rejected his love, the love which alone can bring the human creature to full flourishing. The viciousness of the tenants in this parable is reminiscent of Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor from his classic masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. Ivan tells the story of the Grand Inquisitor to his brother Alyosha. The tale is set in 16th century Spain, where Ivan tells Alyosha that Christ conceived the desire to manifest himself, if only for an instant, to his people, to his struggling, suffering, stinkingly sinful people that nonetheless childishly love him. Ivan clarifies that this is not the second coming at the end of times. Ivan tells Alyosha that he has appeared quietly, unostentatiously, and yet strange this, everyone recognizes him. Just as the first time, Christ heals a blind man and then raises a little girl from the dead. Importantly, much like we have spoken of the past couple of weekends concerning the chief priests and the elders of the people, the Grand Inquisitor witnesses the latter. Approaching the scene, the Grand Inquisitor extends his index finger and orders the guards to arrest him, and they march Christ away. That night, the Grand Inquisitor enters the dark cell where Christ is being held. Is it you? You? Receiving no answer, the Grand Inquisitor continues further on. Why have you come to get in our way? The Grand Inquisitor proceeds to call Christ foolish for assuming he could persuade people to love him freely rather than accept Satan's offer during the temptation in the desert to bow down to him that Christ might rule all the nations. The Grand Inquisitor continues by detailing how since Christ has been gone, they have begun to control the masses and will one day control them absolutely. The Grand Inquisitor says, But the flock will once more gather and once more submit, and this time it will be forever. We shall prove to them that they are feeble, that they are merely pathetic children, but that childish happiness is sweeter than all others. After the tirade, during which Christ had remained silent, a silence the Grand Inquisitor finds difficult to bear, Christ draws near to him and kisses the Grand Inquisitor without saying anything. That was his only response, says Ivan. At this the old man shudders, walks to the door of the cell, opens it, and says to Christ, Go, and do not come back. Do not come back at all. Ever. Ever. Why have you come to get in our way? We had everything under control. We did not need you, your love, your grace. The Grand Inquisitor voices what the tenants in today's parable live indeed by rejecting the message of the servants of the master of the house to the point of killing them and his son. Just as the Grand Inquisitor, the tenants don't want the master of the house in the way. They want to do things as they see fit and seize the produce of the vineyard for themselves. Fellow sinners, how often don't we do the same? How often don't we feel God is getting in our way? How often don't we tell him, I've got this under control, go away. While comparison with Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor may seem an exaggeration, by its very radicality, the story of the Grand Inquisitor is helpful for magnifying the core of the reality of sin. Each and every time we sin, in ways big and small, we too reject God. Instead of enacting the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
We reject his love with the words of the enemy, non servium, I will not serve. To do so is nothing other than to try to replace God with ourselves, to make ourselves God. Okay, so if this is a clear perversion of God's intent for us as human creatures, what positive elements can we gain from today's parable about what God desires for us? The Grand Inquisitor actually hits the proverbial nail on the head here. God desires us to freely love him in return. This is the message of the cross, for it is precisely that sacrifice that provides us with the grace of cooperating non-competitively and harmoniously with God's will for us such that they become one and the same, and we are made truly free. What has God done for us to make it so? And what is our role in all of this? We have already mentioned one thing by reading the hedge figurally. God has given us the law to live by, a law fulfilled in the life of Christ. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, delineate the boundaries of living in relationship with God, if you will. But what else is in the garden? a tower. In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, St. Thomas Aquinas interprets the tower as the temple, the high place where God is worshipped. The worship of God, then, forms the center of our cooperative work in salvation, and our lived relationship with God flows from and revolves around it, to the point of extending it to every moment of our lives. But what other work is to take place in the vineyard? How do we live as to yield the produce desired by the master of the house? Here, our second reading for today from chapter 4 of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians is helpful. St. Paul begins by exhorting the Philippians to be people of prayer. For then, he says, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul is re-emphasizing the idea of the necessity of living with the mind of Christ we discussed last weekend, which can only be accomplished with God's grace. Next, Paul gives us a description of this mentality. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. For the sake of brevity, I want to highlight one word here, excellence. The Greek word Paul uses is arete, which is better translated as virtue. Virtue, as discussed last weekend, from a theological perspective, is most basically participation in the life of Christ. Accordingly, virtue is lovely, honorable, just, pure, and gracious because it is a manifestation of the life of Christ growing in us. And this is precisely what the divine gardener wishes to cultivate in us in his vineyard. But this only takes place when we cooperate with his grace. When we say yes to God, I will serve, I will cultivate your vineyard in me. My friends, today we have discussed two very different responses to God's efforts to cultivate the life of his son in us. The response of the tenants and the grand inquisitor, I will not serve and the response of the Son, Thy will be done. The former, at bottom, voices a hatred for God and a desire to replace Him with ourselves, to define reality for ourselves and determine our purpose on our own. The latter is a response of genuine love, 
a love that accepts our created natures and desires to cooperate with God's grace so as to become the unique images of God we have been created to be. From a theological perspective, cooperating with God's will for us is cooperatively cultivating the life of Christ within us by the help of God's grace in striving for a life of Christian virtue. It is here that the last item in the vineyard comes into play, the wine press. We may think of the virtues as the various nutrients that help us grow to full maturity, bringing the life of Christ to full flourishing in us. It is at this point that we are ready for the wine press, the place where the divine gardener intended to bring us from the very beginning. For filled with the life of Christ, we are ready to give our lives for the life of the world. We are ready to live Eucharistic lives. This is the produce the divine gardener desires, a produce that warms and joys the hearts of all who consume it, setting them on fire with divine love. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.